0: Hi, I'm Judith Zoe. Welcome to The Digital Period. The Digital Period is a public philosophy project where I, Judith, examine our relationship with technology by taking a closer look at period apps. I'm a philosopher and a lawyer based in the Netherlands, and I have been working on digital policy for almost 10 years. In the previous episode, I looked at why people track their period and why that is important to them. I talked to my best friend Iris, who shared her experience of using Clue, an app that allows you to track your menstrual cycle, and Iris her wish for Clue to stop asking her if she wanted to get pregnant. I talked to Mana, who cultivated a method of self-tracking that does not involve technology, and lastly, I talked to Ryan, who's developing a self-tracking app as a political tool to help people get closer to their body. If you haven't already, I strongly invite you to listen to that episode first. There are a number of important values that surface when talking to people about why they track their cycle. Many people track to increase self-understanding, to improve their health and to support them in seeking help from health professionals. Especially when navigating a transitional period, such as going into menopause. Others want to increase control or autonomy over their body and over important life choices, ranging from choosing when to go on a holiday to choosing when to have sex or get pregnant. Many people are interested in self-tracking tools as a means of empowerment. Developers of apps, paired apps, menstruation and fertility apps, however you want to call them, are providing a tool that is useful for many people and that up to a certain degree fulfill a specific need. In the way these apps are marketed, the story of empowerment and control over your body and health is clearly visible. Flow uses the tagline, know your body, own your health. While another well-known app, Natural Cycles, uses the line, the only FDA-cleared birth control app putting power in the palm of your hand. Skip the pharmacy, order online today. While I believe beard apps can be very useful. I too use an app to track my cycle and I think that they can give some people more control over certain aspects of their lives. I also think that many apps come with design choices, business models, data processing methods and narratives that are not very empowering and sometimes even harmful. It is exactly because I believe in the utility of these apps that in this episode, I want to critically examine these aspects because I don't think they are set in stone and I think they are preventable.
1: Flow. don't forget to lock the beginning of your period in
0: the calendar. In this episode, we will look at the societal aspects of period apps. Our social norms and culture influence the tech we make. And the technology we make, again, influences our social norms and culture. There are three people I would like you to meet in this episode. Firstly... Chiara Novak, a graphic designer and visual artist who looked at the narratives put forward by period apps. And then we will talk to Elisabetta Biasin and Anastasia Siapka, both lawyers and researchers at the KU Leuven, the Catholic University in Leuven, Belgium, who looked at the legal, ethical, and societal aspects of period apps. I met Chiara first at a cafe, and then we had many follow up conversations because both of our projects were so similar. We also worked together and organized a workshop where we gave space to people to share their experiences with menstruation and period trackers. Chiara is the creator of the art and video installation Who Are You That Plays With My Data, which is part of an ongoing research project called Not A Period. Her work is a method for her to connect initiatives and facilitate an ongoing dialogue on the role of menstruation in our lives. We recorded this conversation at her art and video installation at the Royal Academy of Art in The Hague.
2: Yeah, so My name is Chiara. I'm originally from Johannesburg, South Africa, immigrated to Cyprus about six years ago and then decided to study uh, here at the Royal Academy of Art in The Hague And I'm now, yeah, just finished my final exam and on the road to graduation. I'm technically based in Berlin and working between graphic design and the visual arts. So it started by interviewing people with menstrual experiences to really understand, yeah, what other people are going through. As I said, it had a personal starting point, but it was important for me to connect to more people. And that was the first moment actually where I noticed the disconnect between the language that people use to explain their experiences versus the language that's offered by the apps, and yeah, through that I've been doing a lot of collaborations, and yeah, the project will keep running. It will keep doing interviews, workshops, and just keep building on it. And the artistic elements or the artistic interventions will be injected throughout the process to yeah articulate the research, but also keep it within the space of art and design
0: one of the things that i was and still am curious about is your own personal experience with mm-hmm. using period trackers yeah and how that impacted you
2: i was diagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome a couple of years ago um, originally i went through this whole thing of first being diagnosed with endometriosis then being told i need to go on the pill to manage this and then going off the pill and then having pcos and it w- it's my whole um doctor's experience has been a bit of a roller coaster uh, so I downloaded period tracking app to kind of take back a bit of control because I felt kind of tossed into like a washing machine in a sense and just being thrown around different doctor's offices with no answers and yeah I mean this is also what period tracking apps promise is this idea of being able to take back the control of your health to be uh, in charge of yourself to be able to find the solution by understanding your body. So I downloaded the app very quickly when you know hearing about this, but my experience was not like this. Um, I think obviously because period tracking apps work off of algorithms and um, yeah prediction functions that work off of uh, yeah a very normative uh, approach to what a menstrual cycle is, and having polycystic ovary syndrome or PCOS. With an irregular, irregular cycle, this does not fit into any sort of model that these apps can account for. Um, and so with that, I started, yeah, my period would not come at the regular 28 days' time, which was fine, but obviously the app thought everything was breaking down and not okay. Um, and this was reflected in the notifications that I was getting. Yeah, just frequently this constant reminder that my period is late, my cycle is abnormal, and this made me feel not in control this made me feel very much like an alien as well in my own body because the app was reminding me that something was wrong but because most of the menstrual cycle is so under-researched and specifically diseases relating to menstruation so PCOS is very much under research. they don't know even uh, what causes it how to cure it it's kind of just eat well and exercise and hope for the best (laughs) um and, yeah, so, yeah, my experience with apps has been, I think, a very whirlwind experience as well. And in some ways even more isolating than sitting across from a doctor because there's not this human element to it anymore. It's uh, You just feel very alone in this bubble and this app telling you that everything's wrong and also that you can then only pay to find out how to fix it, which <laughs> I've never experimented with, but I don't think the answer is there. Yeah. yeah.
0: Flow notifications have come up a lot during my conversations with people about period tracking. After talking to Kiara, I downloaded Flow to see what the fuss was about. Now, I assume that not everyone listening to this episode knows what these notifications look like. Therefore, throughout the episode, you hear Flow notifications that I have received on my phone while using Flow. Of course, in reality, these are texts and not actually audio messages, but this is an audio podcast. Therefore, I've made them into audio messages. And we we organized a workshop together. Yeah. And in that workshop, we also talked to each other about mm-hmm. our own experiences with pain. Yeah. And what that means for how you regard your own body. Yeah. Because uh, I I've had <clears throat> chronic migraines for mm-hmm. quite a long time. It also meant when I was not feeling well that I had a different relationship with my own body Did mm-hmm. I really try to identify or define myself outside of my body and I remember we were talking yeah. about that
2: uh, yeah I think yeah this is very interesting because of the role that the apps play within this because There's so much emphasis on the self and Mm self-care. So you start to look inwards and in relation to pain and and the negative experiences, you almost start to blame yourself. So I think this disembodiment can be a coping mechanism to not blame yourself and not feel that everything is uh, me and my fault. Um, So this can be very powerful, but these apps do not foster this. And um, yeah, if there's not enough research and there's not enough answers... By constantly focusing on the self, then, yeah, it's obviously triggers this thinking of, well, I must be the problem. It's it's a really negative aspect of this narrative, I think. But yeah, I, I really also understand from like a physical aspect of being in so much pain um, from an identity perspective, you start to kind of remove yourself in a sense, because the pain and the physicality of the experience is so removed from your personality and, and who you are that you kind of, yeah, it's like your body walks through the world and you're somewhere else at the same time. It's, it's very hard to be connected at, the, at that stage. But also, it's a bit of a tricky thing because with PCOS, then when my period does come, I feel very connected to myself because mm-hmm. almost like I can breathe again that, okay, now my body's functioning in a sense. Um, so it's this whole process of like removing from the self but being connected to the self and the app in the middle of all of this is very confusing. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, I had downloaded the flow because of our conversation <laughs> yeah. and I uh, purposely uh, let the notifications on mm-hmm. to feel how they would feel. How was it for you when you were...
2: In connection to the PCOS because I often have very intense pain and the migraines and acne... Um, There's just so much happening that I log because this is what it tells you that you need to log these things in order to get better. Mm -hmm. And so, with that, it obviously gives you predictions over time of what you would feel at certain points in your cycle. And if you're always logging that you're happy, then it will tell you you're going to be happy. But if you're always feeling pain or these negative experiences, it's a reminder of this. So, getting notifications that say today you're most likely to have a headache and today you're probably going to feel depressed. And then it also constructs this narrative that kind of closes you in again into this experience of uh, a reminder of just yeah all of the negative things that you're experiencing, but then nowhere to turn to because yeah the only way you turn to is yourself in a sense. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's really tricky. But at the same time, I never switched off the notifications. I actually just uninstalled the app. That was a really big step for me because... It kind of feels like I'm surrendering my control but yeah I think it's it's a weird place that it positions um, these apps because it's it's like this power element and yeah I think for me it was important to recognize that I can also read my body and understand my body without the app um, and that the negative experiences from the app are not necessary to go through Um, but yeah it was a big step yeah (laughs) But I do think yeah, the level of notification, the level of emphasis on self, the inflexibility of the app to account for the diversity of experience, these are the negative aspects. But the positive is that you, yeah, for sure, are in a dialogue with yourself about how you're feeling, you're checking in. Um, but there's a boundary with this that I feel needs to be maintained, which yeah, the apps often cross. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Can you maybe explain to everyone... Where are we sitting right now? How does it look like? Why well, are you
2: sitting? Yeah, <laughs> <way>? <laughs> yeah. Well, we're sitting inside my installation. Um, like I said, I'm studying at the Royal Academy of Arts, studying graphic design, and yeah, we are currently sitting in my installation, which is yeah a giant red pillow with uh, a screen, which is uh, yeah so it's a video-based installation, and words around us that yeah give insight into the experiences of people with menstruation and work together with a video to sort of create a counter narrative to commercial period tracking apps and yeah we're sitting right in the center
0: and behind us there's also a video screen Mm -hmm. Um, where there is a video from, I think, around five minutes. Yes. Can you walk us through the video and maybe the highlights and also what you were trying to convey in the
2: video? So the video is a combination of a documentary-style approach with fictional footage um, that I've created a first-person perspective narration of what it's like to use a period-tracking app Um, It tries to narrate the process of trying to log a symptom and not being able to find the words to articulate what you're feeling. Um, In this, it also tries to show the role of self-diagnosis, which is very prominent for most people due to the lack of research um, in menstruation. Um, And yeah, just to show the process of frustration and isolation that comes with feeling unheard. Um, to show the invasive quality of period tracking apps, um, but to also highlight the role that data plays in keeping these apps running. Um, And yeah, there's uh, research excerpts um, throughout my process as well as collaborations that I've had along the way, for example, with Drip, uh, the open source period tracking app, and of course, the digital period. Um, And yeah, it's more so an articulation of my research. in a video-based format. I think as a visual artist, this is really a medium that I enjoy playing with because it's both, as I say, from a documentary perspective, attached to reality, but uh, also stands within yeah, the realm of uh, imagination that art and design offers. Kiara explains very well how the design of an app can have a negative impact on
0: someone's relationship to their own body. An app that tells you how you should feel when you do not actually feel like that does not increase your self-understanding. It can lead to a feeling of alienation. I wish all of you could see her art video installation that critiques this narrative so well while also providing an alternative. Check out Kiara's Instagram account called Not A Period. June 12th. Your forecasts. You may notice tender breasts. Another important aspect of period apps is how they treat your personal data. This topic received traction in the United States in 2022 after their nationwide right to abortion was overturned by a decision of their Supreme Court. After the decision, some health organizations warned people to delete their period app. Some people feared that the data collected by these apps might be used against these people, especially against people who had had an abortion. In 2021, Flow Health, the developer of the app Flow, settled a case with the American Federal Trade Commission. The FTC alleged that Flow shared personal data with third parties, like Facebook. Flow Health has settled the allegations that the company shared health information of its users with outside data analytics providers after promising such information would be kept private. It is obvious that users do not expect their data to be shared with others because of the nature of these apps. Especially when apps market themselves with slogans as know your body, own your health. One of the many academic papers I read this year was a paper by Anastasia Siapka and Elisabetta Biasin. Their paper is called Bleeding Data, the Case of Fertility and Menstruation Tracking Apps and was published in the Internet Policy Review in 2021. In their paper, Anastasia and Elisabetta report that many fertility and menstruation tracking apps collect an excessive array of data. More importantly, they point out that there is a power and information asymmetry between the user and the companies behind these apps. This asymmetry does not really actually allow users to be in a position that they can consent to the use of their data. In addition, the way data is processed by apps is not always transparent or accurate. In the paper, they argue that our common legal frameworks do not really alleviate the problems that result of the imbalance of power between users and the manufacturers of apps. This year, in April 2023, I was at the Conference on Data Protection and Privacy. The conference had kindly given me the opportunity to interview people at the conference. And lucky me, Elisabetta was there as well. I spoke to her there about why she wanted to look into period apps and why it is important that we make sure that the legal problems around data processing are resolved.
3: Uh, my name is uh, Elisabetta Diazina. I'm a researcher at the KU Leuven Center for an, uh, IT and IP Law at the University of uh, uh, Leuven in Belgium. I do research on uh, legal uh, aspects in uh, tech law.
0: Yeah, maybe can you uh, start with why you wanted to look into peer? tracking apps in the yes. first
3: place. It was uh, 2020, I think. It was a long time ago already and we started and we thought like, mm, there's not so much yet uh, about this, uh, this specific topic, but we think it's kind of a really important one because uh, tracking our periods is something that uh, it happens a lot. I have friends doing that. Uh, I, I, I don't do it myself. I just use the app to see how it works, the apps, because there are many. And for me it was, uh, yeah, uh, let's uh, let's do something together. I think there are many legal uh, aspects that uh, are really important to understand and Anastasia was also interested in that.
0: So you looked at a number of different peer tracking apps and looked at different aspects of these apps. Can you run us through what you did and why?
3: Yes, so basically one of the... Um, Things that we started doing in, in our study that uh, concerned the ethical legal aspects were to understand also which kind of data period apps were processing, because uh, these are kind of health-related data and so, in a way, sensitive data. And uh, in, uh, in our paper, we reported about Flow, Clue, uh, Clover, Period Tracker Deluxe, uh, Period Diary Pro and Women Log. So we had a look uh, at it and uh, indeed we found out that uh, there are kind of a lot of uh, different kind of data including account data, health data like body measurements, body temperature or the dates of the mantra cycle. Yeah. Can you
0: maybe explain what is sensitive data? Because I don't think everyone will know okay. what is sensitive data is yeah, relative to normal data.
3: So sensitive data are those data that, uh, for example, health-related data, data concerning health, so my body temperature, or the way I have, for example, the diagnosis of specific uh, health-related condition. these are all uh, kind of uh, health data. And uh, in EU laws, especially in the GDPR, which is the most uh, uh, relevant EU-based legislation in Europe concerning the data protection of individuals, those data are treated in a specific way. What is important to say is that uh, there is a a stronger protection for that, because if you process personal data and, uh, for example, you have a data leakage or you share with someone else and uh, these data are not uh, treated in a way that uh, is fair or transparent, or also they are treated for purposes that are not the ones that are really (laughs) for yourself, but maybe they can result in uh, harm, such as uh, discrimination or other kinds of... uh, so it's really important to set uh, standards for those data and when you have apps such as periods apps that monitor Aspects such as the date of uh, your periods or your body temperature. This is a real health data And that's why it's really important to have a look at it and say yeah, this is health data It, it really deserves uh, protection and attention.
0: Yeah Yeah, so the consequence of something being sensitive data is well one the pr- in principle you you can't use that data. And if you do, there are more requirements um, that that come into play than other kinds of data. There are many people who would think, well, if the user doesn't like how their data is being used, they can just not use it. And if they do use these apps, isn't that just proof that they don't mind that their data is being used in a certain way? How do you look at that?
3: So um this is maybe one of my personal opinion. I think it's that goes beyond the paper that if you having are having all this data and persons who would say, why do you use the app? I think it's fair to reply. I think we have, we should have the right to use apps that are compliant with uh, general uh, data protection laws and in general that are more to to the rights of uh, of individuals so it's not about not using apps which of course you you could do it I mean you can still still self track your own uh, menstrual uh, period in uh, on paper I do this this way honestly I think it's uh, it's fair to 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 start dialogue on these apps they have this problem let's talk about that and let's talk about the fact that these problems need to be addressed somehow and these are for example the legal aspects that have some problems or some subtle aspect that needs to be reminded of and so i think that's why
0: if you want to learn more i really recommend reading their paper there are many fields of law that are relevant when it comes to this subject too many to accurately discuss here Anastasia and Elisabetta continued their research also after the publication of their paper. A couple of months after I spoke to Elisabetta, I participated in a workshop on digital harms at the University of Sheffield. Again, the universe was working with me and Anastasia was also a participant. During the workshop, I shared the stories of Iris, Ryan, Chiara and Mana that you also heard in this and the previous episode. After the workshop, I got to talk more to Anastasia about the ethical and societal aspects that she had encountered in their research. So my name is Anastasia Siapka and I am a doctoral
1: researcher at the KU 11 Center for IT and IP Law in Belgium. Uh, so my background is in uh, law and philosophy, uh, but um, my research tries to combine uh, legal and philosophical perspectives and apply them specifically to the context of emerging technologies.
0: So one thing that you go into in your paper is the promises that FMTs make to users. Can you share some information about that?
1: Fertility and menstruation tracking apps are presented as a means for users to gain control over their health and sex life. Sometimes they do so by using a feminist understanding of empowerment in the sense of users being able to have control over their sex life. They often have messages that try to convey that once users control their menstruation, they will be able to control their entire lives as well, which I find a bit problematic. And they tend to favor a sort of empowerment that results from data-driven, app-generated knowledge compared to uh, users' embodied knowledge. And what do you mean with users' embodied knowledge? I mean that these apps rely a lot on the perspective of the quantified self, uh, meaning bodily states being understood through quantification rather than users' own perception of their uh, feelings, uh, sensations and symptoms.
0: And you said you found it a bit problematic that they imply that understanding your cycle means understanding your life. Why do you think it's problematic?
1: It brings to mind some to say the least, old-fashioned views about women in that particular instance uh, being completely governed by their hormones, which is, of course, untrue. Sometimes these apps take it for granted that their users' objective is to uh, get pregnant, which also brings to mind perceptions in the history of medicine from ancient times about women's body uh, as having its sole purpose solely to procreate. And
0: you think there's more to it. <laughs> <to> yes. <us. laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, so you looked at whether these kind of apps deliver on their promises, especially when you look at how they process and handle data of users. And can you share with us what you found? So, I don't want to give a black and white
1: response and say that they do or do not deliver on their promises. I think we can take a more balanced approach and accept that a technological tool can be at the same time empowering and disempowering depending on how it is used and how it is configured. The fact that these apps are so popular in app stores and so many people are using them speaks to the fact that they find them valuable and maybe empowering. So I don't want to negate um, their contribution and their value in that regard but i think that um, there is a risk versus convenience calculation that as users um, we engage in uh, when we engage with a technological product and menstruation tracking apps are so vocal about the convenience that they offer that i just want to balance this out with a little more exposition on the risks so that this calculation then becomes a more informed uh, mm. one so yes some users find them empowering and uh, find that they gain control uh, over aspects of their lives but also these apps expose users that are both uh, legal and ethical and some of these we have um, explored them in our research with Elisabetta. and can you share what kind of yeah what kind of harms or risks you found the first risk that is associated with uh, these apps is surveillance in broad terms but this surveillance takes different forms The most obvious form is the comprehensive commercial surveillance of users, given that there are uh, so many companies that use their data for marketing and advertising campaigns. But there is also a form of surveillance uh, that um, Karen uh, Levy has coined intimate surveillance, meaning surveillance in the context of a romantic relationship. Some of these apps, uh, they have a partner integration feature, so they allow a user's partner to access data about the user's menstruation, uh, supplement them with their own more objective observations and even uh, react to the user's menstruation, for instance, by bringing them flowers or uh, sending a thoughtful text. These practices uh, certainly uh, erode trust and authenticity and they can become oppressive in in the hands of uh, abusive partners. For instance, uh, we can imagine a scenario where Uh, in the U.S. uh, where there are bounties, monetary bounties for people accusing someone of an abortion, an abusive partner might use this data to uh, get a bounty and be rewarded for sharing uh, this uh, data with uh, law enforcement. But also surveillance uh, might take place in the workplace. Uh, Several FMTs create tailored workplace versions. Employers are... ...favorable to the use of FMTs because uh, they see them as a productivity uh, tool. This is all the more so in specific professions such as athletic ones. Um, And then apart from workplace surveillance, uh, there's also surveillance uh, that might happen by political or religious uh, figures... Um, There was uh, one FMT, um, one menstruation tracking app uh, called Fem that was uh, funded by anti-abortion and anti-gay Catholic activists. And uh, we can imagine that the the sharing of such intimate data, data that combines information about one's sexual life but also their overall lifestyle uh, might be harmful. For instance, in cultures that might prohibit Sexual activity during menstruation. So, menstruation data are very intimate to be uh, in the wrong hands. Mm-hmm. Apart from uh, surveillance, a second concern uh, refers to the quantification of our understanding of our bodies. I think it's quite simplistic to just uh, see health problems as information problems that can be solved by applying additional information uh, to them. The concern that was mostly examined in our paper, however, is the commodification of users' data. Users uh, generate value by sharing uh, intimate details of their behavior, their, role, their emotional and their uh, physiological states. Uh, but they are not rewarded uh, for this value. So in our paper, we interpreted this uh, value generation as a case of unpaid digital gendered consumer
0: labor. I think this might not be clear for everyone so most users provide data because they think that it serves themselves so why is that a commodification or what's what's being commodified here
1: users provide information and the value of this information isn't just its use value meaning uh, the value that this information has for the different uh, processing operations that are necessary for the use of the app but The information that they share is also shared with third parties that use them for marketing campaigns, for advertising campaigns, in general to make profit. So users' data also has exchange value. And it is uh, this second aspect that makes it problematic because users contribute with their information to the creation of a surplus of profit but do not receive part of that profit back. This is nicely captured by uh, the term uh, menstrual capitalism uh, to imply this uh, growing commercial interest that companies uh, show recently for uh, menstruation and uh, related products. Another risk has to do with the violation of the principle of maleficence in bioethics. Although menstruation tracking apps should benefit uh, users' health and well-being and should avoid harming them, and they also should avoid the risk of harming them. The efficacy and accuracy of these apps is very frequently questioned and there was even a case of unwanted pregnancies in Sweden among women that used this app for contraception, which is a very concrete example of the reproductive health risks uh, that these apps might cause, especially if used as a standalone form of uh, birth control without any disclaimers about their medical reliability.
0: NOS, like one of the major news outlets in the Netherlands, published an article about this as well, where abortion clinics in the Netherlands said that they really saw a trend of people moving off the pill, and that they saw, especially with young women, that would cause unwanted pregnancies. And yeah, they saw that there was really an anti-hormonal movement, and like a pro-technology movement going on, which is not necessarily bad, only it is bad in the cases where people don't want to get pregnant, and then get pregnant because they don't understand the risks. Uh, This is a
1: very interesting observation, because many of these apps... Uh, They do not include warnings or labors or disclaimers about their medical reliability. Some of them even falsely claim that they can be validly used for contraception. Or they include disclaimers about their medical reliability at the very bottom of very lengthy privacy policies. Or they just leave users to decide for themselves, which again is not very empowering.
0: And did you have a fifth risk that you wanted to share?
1: Yes. The other risk that we identified had to do with the design of these apps, uh, which was very stereotypical. This is commonly referred to as the Pink It and Shrink It strategy. So compared to male products, products that are targeted to female consumers should be girly in pastel colors. Indeed, menstruation tracking apps do that. They uh, often have fertility related icons like seeds and circles they use very gendered language so they often say demystifying womanhood or ladies or be the girl who is in control of uh, her life so all these design choices reflect only a very specific type of user not the um, diversity of uh, these
0: apps user base yeah i have a lot of peer tracking apps on my phone right now because of this project <laughs> and then it really stands out that most of them are pink and flowers or pink and flower related. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pink hell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I have one more question. One. Well, first, I, I just wanted to say also here that I really loved your paper and I loved meeting Elisabetta as well and loved hearing her speak and it's great to now have the additional information also coming from you. And I have one more question, which is more future looking, because I'm looking at individual lived experiences and the way this technology works and policies around it, but I also want to think about the future and how we can reimagine a future with technology and how that could look like. And I was wondering if you have any ideas or hopes or thoughts you would like to share on how our future should look like and maybe what we can do to make sure that that future happens.
1: First of all, I think I would like to go a step back and say that we should challenge the idea that we need to find a solution to these problems through technology itself. From our research, but also, for instance, from the workshop that uh, we both participated today, I think we can draw as a conclusion that our healthcare infrastructure should be uh, very much supported and funded. So we should also ask ourselves whether it is the technology that we need to improve, but also whether it is our healthcare that we need to improve, our perception and our awareness around menstruation, our understanding of the different pressures that make people insecure about uh, these topics. But this is on a different level. Uh, on the level of the apps themselves and how we can reimagine their their purpose and their function, I can think of less and more radical options. Mm -hmm. Uh, In terms of the less radical, I would say for the risk of surveillance, for instance, app providers should ensure that they are compliant with uh, the law. They could also explore technological configurations that are more privacy-friendly, such as processing data locally on the user's device uh, rather than on the cloud. They could have a more proactive and anticipatory approach, for instance, by engaging in privacy and data protection impact assessments. In terms of the risks related to gender stereotypes in design, again, providers could involve users in the app development process, but also reward them. For their inv- involvement they could also involve more medical professionals and collaborate with healthcare organizations i would say that users should challenge the insights derived from these apps and understand that they are not always objective or accurate what i find to be the most crucial aspect of this discussion which is a bit more radical is that there should be a different a completely different business model in our paper with elizabetta we have argued for a demand for wages, mm-hmm. inspired by the wages against the housework movement. And I think this is an important demand because even if it's not taken literally, it still has a symbolic and heuristic potential because it gives visibility to the underlying economic relations of the digital economy. So. I think it would be an interesting idea to establish a universal basic income funded by the profits generated by users' data. Uh, And this would be my uh, preferred solution, to have some of this value redistributed among users. Great. It's a
0: cool solution. In this episode, we explored some of the societal problems that occur when period apps do not completely align with values we all find important. When using an app, it is important to be aware of what it is that you want and need, and whether the app you are using truly lives up to your needs. After this episode, you might feel a little worried. That is a healthy response, I think. However, whether you use period apps or develop them, technology is not like gravity. We can actually impacted. In the next episode, we will go into exactly that. How can developers entangle the values they find important in the things they make? And we will discuss how people who use apps can navigate this world in search of an app that fits you. Isn't that exciting? So stay tuned and talk to you next week! Thank you so much for listening. This episode was made by me, Judith Zoe. A special shout out to everyone featured in this episode, especially Kiara Nowak, Elisabetta Biasin, and Anastasia Siapka. If you want to learn more about their work or the articles mentioned in this episode, check them out on the digitalperiod.com. The jingle was made by Christos Holtens and me. The flow notifications were voiced by Noah Schoppel and Timothy van der Linden. This episode was made possible by the Alfred Landecker Fund and Humanity in Action. A special thanks to the Privacy Salon and the Conference on Privacy and Data Protection for letting me interview during the conference, and the University of Sheffield for organizing their workshop on gender digital harms, where I spoke to Anastasia. Thanks, everyone.
2: Feeling yourself? Ovulation is typically your friskiest time of the month.
0: Get tips for more satisfying solo sessions. And one more thing about the notifications. I will say so much more about them in the epilogue, which is the last episode of this podcast series, because I have a lot to say about them. So if you think I'm just going to ignore how crazy they are, no, 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 no. I will get back to it. I'll promise.